Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me again, please, if you will. Father, we do truly have the most amazing privilege to be your people, to be called by your name. And we truly ought to be a praising people, a people whose hearts are ever lifted up in exultant praise to you. And yet we confess that we fall short. We confess that our hearts and minds are often preoccupied with many other things, things that discourage us, things that even cast our hearts into the dust, things that vex us, things that afflict us, things that entrance and titillate us. And I pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would forgive us, and that you would again give us hearts lifted on high, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill our hearts and our minds with your glory that is in the face of Christ. Meet us in this time, we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. As we continue on in, in the, the Psalms, our, our consideration of the Psalms more thematically than anything, uh, as I've said several times, these uh, are songs of Israel's sonship. The Psalms were at the center of Israel's worship of God. They were at the heart of Israel's liturgy, composed to be sung as songs. And the premise, the primary premise behind Israel's worship and therefore behind the Psalms was the fact that Israel was, by God's own sovereign electing choice, by his own goodness towards them, Israel was both individually as, as individual persons and collectively the Son of God. And that great privilege, that, that perspective, that understanding uh, undergirded all of these psalms, whatever their particular focus was, whatever their orientation was. Israel was son of God. And we've seen how the psalms begin by extolling the blessing, the blessedness that attends that, that privilege, the blessedness that belongs to the, the children of God. God is a loving and a faithful father. Israel experienced that throughout her centuries. And you hear this, this term or see this term often throughout the Psalms and certainly through Israel's scriptures. The Lord's loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness never fails. But that idea of loving kindness, said, is a Hebrew term that really carries more the idea of a loyalty a dedication, a devotion, a commitment. A commitment on God's part 
to his own determinations, to his own promises that are bound up in the people of Israel. And so even God's loving kindness is itself purposeful. It's not just loving kindness in the way that we might want to think. Happy affections, a kind of whimsical sort of feeling about people or circumstances. God's loving kindness is really the loving loyalty that he has to his people by virtue of his loyalty to his purposes, his intent for the world that he's created. And we know that God created his human creature in his own image and likeness. And one of the important significances of an image is that an image bears the essential likeness or correspondence to that which it represents. In the ancient world, when a temple was built to a god, the last thing that was put into the temple was an image, a physical representation. And that image represented the physical presence, point of interface with that deity. And that's very much uh, a, a central idea. We don't catch it. But in the ancient world, the ancient Israelites would have caught it. That's very much at the heart of the creation account. God's creation work is the forming of a dwelling place for himself, his sanctuary. His creation is his sanctuary. And the last thing that he does is create his image. That is the point of interface between him and the world that he created. The image representing that God, the image representing his rule, his love, his wisdom, his mind, his faithfulness in the world. And because God is love, the very first and most significant quality of his image children is love. If God is love, then those who are created in his image and likeness are also, at least in their created intent and and nature, they are most defined by love. Love as it's true in God, not love perhaps as we know it, not love as we tend to think about it, which like everything else in our fallenness is centered in ourselves. What we call love is just really self-indulgence, self-concern, self-involvement, the operation of utility and reciprocity, caring for those who care about us. Remember how even Jesus said, if you love those who love you, so what? Everybody does that. If you greet your brethren, so what? Everybody does that. You are to be as your father who causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So Israel, as son of God, its fundamental obligation was to love the Lord, their God. Even, I think, in many traditions to this day, but certainly in the ancient uh, Jewish world, the very central confession of Israel was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. They call that the Shema, the prayer of the Shema. It was a prayer that was often uttered in martyrdom by Jews who were faithful to the God of Israel. 
you shall love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you see Moses even emphasizing this to the sons of Israel as they're preparing to enter the land uh, of Israel after coming out of Egypt. Moses' final words, if, as it were, to Israel as they are preparing to enter the land. He says in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, What, O Israel, does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? This is to live with a conscient, conscious consciousness of him, a constant consciousness of him, not being afraid of him in the sense of trying to run and hide from him, but living in, a, in, in an intentional, conscious, submissive devotion to him, a true reverence. What does he require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? And then chapter 11, verse 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments, his Torah, his revealed truth to you. And know this day that I'm not speaking with your sons who have not known, who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs, his works, which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all his land. And what he did to Egypt's army, its horses, its chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you, and the Lord completely destroyed them. Your sons are not the ones who saw what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. Verse 7, but your own eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord which he did. Therefore, keep every commandment which I am commanding you to, to this day. You have seen the Lord's mighty hand. Love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was Israel's calling. And these readings show that authentic love, not just whimsical affection or subjective emotion, but authentic love, love as it's true in God, is grounded in true knowledge. I could put it this way, to know God in truth is to love him. You cannot know him in truth and not love him. You cannot really know who he is and not love him. And so love for God expresses itself then in a life of active adoration, praise, thanksgiving. The point of all of that is to say that when we look at the Psalms, as the songs of sonship, we would expect them to have as a central theme this idea of praise. And in fact, the Hebrew title of the Psalter is the Sefer Tehalim, Tehalim, the songs of praise, or the book of praise, Sefer Tehalim, the book of praises. If the Psalms are anything, they are a worshipful, powerful, prayerful catalog of Israel's praises. And so as we've moved through this, this uh, series and looked at, okay, the sons of God are those who are blessed of the Father. We've seen how that blessing resides in ultimately the purpose that God has for us. The blessing that God has for us now ultimately looks to the purpose for which he created mankind. And we looked at Psalm 91 where we saw how there's this 
reciprocal faithfulness, this loving devotion between God and his faithful children. And all of that then brings us to this point of saying, okay, how do the sons of God live in relation to God? They live lives of praise. And as I thought about a particular psalm to pick, there are all sorts of ones that we could go to, but I've come to Psalm 145, and for a couple different reasons. First, it's the last of the psalms of David in the Psalter, and it's a climactic psalm of David within the Psalter. When we read through the Psalms, we have to, we may not always be able to figure out why they, they arranged things the way they did, but the Jewish collators of the Psalter had a reason for arranging things the way they did. And you have David's Psalms scattered throughout the books of the Psalms, but they put this last package or collection of Psalms right near the end from 138 to 145. And there's a movement. Those are the last of the Psalms of David, and there's a movement in them from David's posture of humility and submission and trust, a sense of marveling at the unsearchableness of God. Search me and know me. You form me in the inner man. You know, all of these ideas of just kind of this heart bowed before the Lord. And then David beseeching God, petitioning him to meet him in his need, to deliver him, to rescue him from evil men. The fact that this is the God who formed me, this is the God who knows me, this is the God who searches me. I trust myself to you. Deliver me, hear my cries, be there for me, come to rescue me. And then that last collection of psalms ends on two psalms, 144, 145, that are exultant psalms of praise. 44 is very personally oriented, David praising God for establishing him as king, the triumph that he's given him as the king of Israel, for the sake of God's people, with a view to David's own calling. God's selection of him to be the ruler of his people Israel. Even in view of the covenant promise of God to him that a son to come from him will be the one in whom God will restore and perfect all things and bring the glory to Israel that he'd promised all along. So 144 is very much oriented towards David himself and his own triumph. 145 then, the very last of David's psalms, is very general, it's very comprehensive in its scope, praising God in the most broadest, all-encompassing way. And that then becomes a, a segue or a platform into the last five psalms, which are all focusing expressly on the praise of God. Each of them begins with the exclamation, Praise the Lord! Alleluia! Praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. So that's why I picked 145 as a psalm to consider this topic of, of praise. And interestingly, and we'll read it in just a second, it doesn't begin with that same exclamation, praise Yahweh. But it has that as its theme throughout, and you see it even in the ascription to it. 
if you, I don't know what your Bible says, the, my Bible says a, a psalm of praise of David. A psalm of praise of David. It's the only one that carries that term, Tehillah, praise. It really means a praise of David. The Psalms are the book of praises. This is a praise of David. So even in the ascription, we see what the theme of it is. Well, let's go ahead and read this, and then I'll, I'll talk about some general observations and, and then some more specific things before uh, hopefully bringing this around a little bit in terms of what do we do with it. Psalm 145. David says, I will extol you, my God, O king. David is the king, but he's the king who serves the great king. David's kingship is the exercise of Yahweh's kingship. God is the great king. And I will bless your name forever and forever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh, highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We can't even get our arms around his greatness. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. And men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory, the remembrance of your abundant goodness, and shall shout joyfully at your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power in order to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Yahweh sustains all who fall. He raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his deeds. The Lord Yahweh is near to all who call upon him, all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him, and he will also hear their cry and will deliver them. Yahweh keeps all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and forever. So if you notice as you read through this, and hopefully when you read through the Psalms, recognizing their, that they're poetry, look for the parallelism, look for the com contrast, look for the repetition of themes, things that help you to get a sense of where the emphases lie. And this Psalm is marked out by an inclusio. An inclusio is like a parenthesis, a bookend on each, a bookend on each end of it. It begins with David's own stated, his declaration of his commitment to praise and bless the Lord forever and forever. This expression, forever and ever, I don't know what your version has, 
my version, the NES, has that, is repeated both in this opening declaration of David and in his closing declaration in verse 21. It's, the, it's an expression that has the idea most literally of unto the ages until forever. Unto the ages until forever or until. Unto the ages in perpetuity. And that repeated phrase at the beginning and at the end, again, shows you that there's this inclusio, also in the fact that it's tied to David's stated commitment to be defined, marked out, characterized by praise, not just in this life, but forever, forever. He begins with his own personal commitment to that. He ends with his personal commitment to that, but also adds to it his belief, his confidence that one day all flesh, all living things, and by extension the whole creation, will join him in that chorus of everlasting praise. So David begins by saying, this is my commitment to the Lord, everlastingly. And he ends by saying, this is my commitment to the Lord. But one day, all creation will join me in this. That's the inclusio that gives us a sense of, okay, now we have, we've kind of bounded this on either end. So what is the focus of David's praise then? What is it that he's praising God for? He praises him for his greatness. Gadol. His heaviness, his weightiness, his significance, the greatness of God. But if you note, he doesn't praise him because of his intrinsic greatness, the greatness of God himself in terms of his own being, his own deity, his own sovereignty, although he wouldn't be excluding that or saying that's irrelevant. But the greatness that David is taking note of and praising God for is his manifest greatness. His demonstrated greatness. The greatness that he demonstrates in the might and marvel of his works in the world. Verse 3, great is Yahweh, highly to be praised. His greatness can't even be searched out. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men will speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I too will tell of your greatness. See, the focus is on God's greatness demonstrated in what he does. Not who he is in his own private being, but what he does. David doesn't define explicitly what these great works are. But we can tell from the psalm itself and its general thrust that he had in mind Yahweh's deeds performed on behalf of his purposes in and for the world. Even the way he ends, ultimately all creation will join me in this chorus of everlasting praise. The wonderful works, the awesome acts that David has in mind are the purposeful, intentional exercise of God's will unto his goal 
for the creation, which Paul says is the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth and the Messiah. This sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his will, so that now in administering the fullness of the times, he will work towards that summing up of everything in Christ. And to the Corinthians, he said that when Christ returns, when the resurrection takes place, when the creation is renewed, then God will be all in all. That's his design. That's his intent. And these mighty works are oriented towards that purpose. It's not just God showing that he can part a sea and that he can destroy this army and that he can move the pieces around, you know, as a sovereign chess master. It's not that. It's God active in the world towards the carrying out and accomplishment of his declared and even uh, eternally determined purposes. God doing according to his intent that he has made known. His manifest greatness. Well, what is David's perspective in this? Again, as he's thinking about God's mighty works in the world. Well, as God's anointed king and as the one in whom God had even made known that his messianic purpose, his purpose ultimately in this one to come was bound up in David. We see that in the Davidic covenant. As God's chosen king to rule over his covenant people for the sake of the world, David understood these purposes in the light of God's work in and through Israel. Now, he doesn't identify Israel in this psalm. He doesn't connect Israel specifically with God's mighty works. But the Israelites for whom he penned this song would have understood that. And the best way that I can point to that is to note David's use of covenant language associated with Israel's life with God. These are the things we have to look for. This psalm wasn't penned for us. Does it, is it relevant to us? Yes. But in terms of, of its relevance being fleshed out through its significance to the original audience. And as David penned this song to be sung by the sons of Israel, he pulled into it language of Israel's covenant relationship with God. And they would have understood that. They would have discerned it. In praising God's universal goodness and mercy, he puts... Israel and its relationship with God at the center. He lauds Yahweh, and first of all, throughout, he's using the term Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's God's covenant name, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. That puts it in an Israelite context. But he praises God's great and abundant loving kindness. As I said, the term is hesed, and it really means a loyalty or a dedication, an integrity. And specifically in terms of Israel's life, God's loving kindness referred to his loyalty to them and the covenant he made with them. Ultimately, his loyalty to his purposes that had them at the center. You see this even in the, in the beginning of the, the giving of the Decalogue. Exodus chapter 20 at the point where God ratifies the covenant relationship with Israel, 
He says, you shall, not, in, in, you shall not make for yourself an idol any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing covenant faithfulness, said to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." those who love me and who keep my commandments. And when Israel made the golden calf, remember, and Moses came down the mountain and he smashed the tablets and God was going to destroy the people and Moses asked God to remember to actually be jealous for himself, his purposes, his work. And to not destroy, to preserve the nation for the sake of his work. As he was interacting with God, this is in chapter 33, 11, uh, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I've found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation, this is your people. And God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't lead us up from here. Because God had said, I'm done, I'm leaving I'm done. These are your people. You take them. And Moses is pleading with him to continue on. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the people who are upon the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. And Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now, how does God show his goodness and proclaim his name to Moses? As you go down through here, it says, verse 5 of chapter 34, The Lord descended in the clouds, stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, the grandchildren, to the third, fourth generation. The same thing in which God explained himself at the beginning of the giving of the Decalogue. My point in reading that is that that formula was at the very heart of Israel's sense of who their God was and how he had revealed himself to them. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will disclose my name to you. When you see my goodness and you hear my name, it's this, the Lord, the Lord God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, faithfulness to my purposes, to my word. 
And you see throughout Israel's history that even they took that formula and they, in a sense, pointed back, they pled it back to God in times of need, times of distress. I won't go there, but if you look at Nehemiah 1, when he's, he's still in, in, the, in the captivity, in the diaspora, and he's wanting, he's thinking about, and he's seeking for God to do this restorative work. The temple's been built, Jerusalem's still in ruins. And even when he goes back to Jerusalem and he's involved in the rebuilding of this temple, both in his desire at the beginning and in his prayer at the end, pleading with God, you are the God of Israel, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Israel's pleas to God to be faithful were pleading back to him the way in which he had revealed himself as a faithful God. That's my point. And so David, using that formula here in verse 8 and 9 or verse 8, the Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. He will be faithful to his purposes. He will be loyal to what he's promised. He will be loyal to what's bound up in his covenant. Indeed, he's good to all. His mercies are over all his works. So David's perspective is God's faithfulness to his purposes. What what does he see as the scope of that? If you will, what is the horizon of David's praise? Obviously, it extends to God in relation to himself, in relation to Israel, even in relation to the human race. But beyond that, ultimately, praise to God at the level of his entire creation. Verse 14, the Lord sustains all who fall. He raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due time. Very much an echo of Psalm 104. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. So David is looking at this through the lens of God's purposes, his work in and through Israel on behalf of the world of men, but ultimately as those works have in view the full realization of his intent for all creation. The mercy, the loving kindness, the goodness of God are cosmic in their scope. Cosmic in their scope. So just to put some summary points on this and then, and then bring in some application to us, David's praise is not just nebulous. It's not undefined. You know, often, I don't know if you've experienced this, but you can, you can go into various worship venues in a worship service or whatever, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, hand-raising, praise God, praise God, praise God, but there's no definition of what that is or who he is or what we're really praising or what this God has done. David's praise is informed, it's focused, it's intentional. He recognized and he was celebrating God's works of power and provision. But not just that he's mighty, not just that he's sovereign. People even do this with Jesus' miracles. They say, see, that proves he's God because look, he can calm the sea and he can raise the dead and he can heal diseases and he can cast out demons. 
But those are not works just to demonstrate his power or his deity. They are attesting that he is continuing and working towards the climactic work of God that is the deliverance and renewal of his creation. David praised God's greatness. What greatness? The greatness of his works. But works as David perceived them serving the goal of God's own grace and mercy, covenant faithfulness on behalf of the whole creation. That's why he can say God's works give thanks to him. Not just people, but God's works give thanks to him. And it's also the reason that David could say that God's godly ones his faithful ones, his holy ones, praise and bless him. They openly proclaim the glory of his kingdom, the glory of his kingdom, the manifest power of his mighty deeds. But note also, he says, there's a larger goal in the proclamation, the the verbal, the open praise and blessing of the godly ones praising the God of Israel. There's a larger goal than simply worshiping God. Verse 12, in order to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts, the glory of the majesty of your kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom, presided over by a God whose dominion endures throughout all generations. Their praise was to be testimony to the sons of men. And that itself is another allusion to Israel's role in God's purposes. Israel as son of God was to make God known to the nations through its praises, through its worship, through its testimony. And this praise of God and his greatness is that the nations would know him. And again, this is an Israelite context. But ultimately, the praise of God is not just taking note of him, but in the cause of his goal that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, that all the families of the earth will be blessed in him. David recognized that these works that he's declaring and celebrating were works that had their effect and their goal in his purposes for the whole creation. So his closing statement is a reiteration of his commitment to be a man defined and characterized by praise, but ultimately in the confidence, the trust, that one day all creation would be joining that chorus with him. See, his perspective is big and it's encompassing. His praises are vast. His praises have a huge context for them. And these are truths that are crucial to even understanding the concepts of righteousness and goodness that David mentions. He's not talking about God's intrinsic nature, that he's a good God, or his intrinsic nature, that he's righteous, that he's morally upright or blameless. That's not how he's speaking, but how God conducts himself. Righteousness as pertaining to how he is in the world. Goodness as how he is in the world. God is good to all. Good to all. He acts in kindness, mercy, seeking the well-being of his creatures. 
not just human beings, but the creation. But again, that goodness, that kindness, that mercy, they're purposeful. They have a goal. It's not just God's a nice guy that is kind to everybody. There's a goal in his kindness. There's a goal in his acted goodness. And the goal in that is the accomplishing, the working out of, of the purposes that he has, even in his loyalty, his devotedness, his faithfulness. And that helps us to understand his righteousness. His righteousness is his practical adherence to his conformity to this thing of his loyalty. God is committed to what he has determined, what he has made known, what he has promised, and his acting out in all things in conformity to that commitment is his righteousness. When, when, the, when the people of Israel and throughout the scriptures talked about the righteousness of God, when God talks about his own righteousness, that's what it's talking about. He will be faithful. All that he does will be true to what he's purposed. Think about even Paul in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. God has shown his moral uprightness. No. The righteousness of God has been revealed which the law and the prophets spoke about, the coming of the Messiah. That's the supreme righteousness of God. That's the supreme act of the faithfulness of God. And that's how the writer can say that God's righteousness, uh, David can say that the righteousness of God has these two dimensions. On the one side, he embraces those who call upon him in truth. Because God is true to his intent, he's true to his designs, he's true to his work. Those who call upon him in truth, he embraces, he's near to them. To fulfill the desire of those who fear him, he will hear their cry, he will deliver them. He preserves all those who love him. Because he's faithful. But the other side of that is that he sets himself against and ultimately destroys everything and everyone that opposes his purposes. Everything that is contrary to his chesed, his righteousness, everything that is contrary to his purposes and the the enacting of those purposes, he sets himself against. He takes it out of the way. In the end, there will be nothing left that contradicts him. So that's the sense in which David is singing the praises of God and saying that this will be perpetually in my mouth forever and forever. So what I want to put in front of us then in closing today is a few questions. The first is when we read through the Psalms and we see that the worship of God in the Psalms is so centered in praise, my question is this, are our lives characterized by praise? Not just occasionally do we praise God, are our lives characterized by praise? David treated this as the constant, moment by moment, everlasting disposition of his heart and his mind and his mouth. 
And maybe because we're not the best judges of ourselves, let me put it this way. Would the people who know us best describe us as a people characterized by praise? Would the people who know us best, our husbands, our wives, our kids, our parents, whatever, would the people who live with us day by day say that we are characterized in this way? Gets kind of convicting, doesn't it? I'd say we spend far more time grumbling and obsessed with ourselves in various ways than being a people of praise. Secondly, even to the extent that we are a praising people, what things provoke our praise? What is it that causes praise to erupt in our hearts? What what sorts of things cause us to enter into praise? And when we praise God, what does our praise focus on? In principle, not just in the particulars. What principle drives our praise? What things provoke our praise? And what sort of uh, principle of practice even characterizes that praise? To flesh that out a little bit, Where do we in our persons, or where do we, let me put it this way, where do we, namely our persons, our concerns, our interests, our sense of ourself, where do we fit into our praise? If we are a praising people, and I said what things provoke our praise, where do we fit into our praise? Our sense of ourselves, our concerns, our persons, our needs, our interests. Where do those things fit into our praises? And as I thought about this, I was kind of struck by this common way in our Christian culture we use this term praise. One of the ways that I think gets at this is that even in terms of of like prayer chains or prayer occasions, we talk about prayer requests and praises. I have a prayer request, I have a praise. A prayer request, a praise. The prayer requests are usually very personal. The praises are usually very personal. I have a a praise, this good thing happened. I have a praise, God answered this prayer in this way and solved this thing that I was worried about. Our way of thinking about praise is We praise God when outcomes that we seek are realized. That's when our hearts tend to be provoked in prayer. To what extent does our praise follow David's pattern? There's nothing in this psalm about David's personal life, his personal concerns, his health, his finances, none of that. And I'm not denigrating, don't misunderstand me, I'm not denigrating, I'm not illegitimizing, praising God for personal benefits. There's a kind of implicit sense of that when, God, when David says God is good to all. And he satisfies the desires of his people. But even there, the the sense in which David saw the praising of God for those personal benefits, it was through the lens of, 
of the ultimate goal of God in those personal benefits, which is beyond the benefits themselves. It's this idea of the God who is working in all things for the good of those who love him. And so even when it's a personal benefit, David looked at it through the lens of, again, God's larger purposes. That's my point. Not simply what's happening to me today, what are my circumstances, what are my needs, but a larger view. David sought God's favor in his own petitions. He sought God's favor in deliverance, in provision, in care, as the king anointed to rule over God's kingdom in his name and authority. David sought God's favor that God's purposes in Israel would be fulfilled as he met David's own needs. You have anointed me as king. This is the way that Moses even pled with God. He didn't say, don't destroy the people, let them live. He said, be jealous for your own purposes. Don't do this because then the nations will say God was not, this God of Israel wasn't able to fulfill his word. Moses was jealous for God's own designs, God's own ends, God's purposes. He saw himself, his needs, his struggles, his blessings. He saw them in terms of his own place within God's ultimate purpose for Israel and through Israel to the world. He had a larger purview. We need to have that larger purview. So how do we go about maturing? How should we approach this thing of maturing in this dimension of our sonship and our worship? How do we get beyond this narrow little sense of prayer need praise, prayer need praise? Well, the first thing I think ought to be pretty obvious, which is that we need to saturate ourselves in the scriptural story. In other words, we need to really learn and have woven into the fabric of our being this God and his purpose for the world. We need to really know who this God is and really what it is that he's doing. What is his purpose for the world? Where is all of this going? What is the meaning of what he's doing? That will enable us to nourish a right perspective on life and its issues. You know, you could be riding down the highway, if you could, you know, be riding across the Nevada desert, you wake up in a car, you can study everything about the inside of this car. The fabric on the seats, the, you know, the instrumentation, the color of the dashboard. You can know everything about that immediate environment, but you have no real sense of the meaning of any of that unless you know where you're going, right? Where this is all going. You're just assessing your immediate circumstance, which is meaningless. It doesn't tell us anything. When we understand God's larger purposes, it puts our lives, our circumstances, our issues into context where they can be understood. 
Doesn't mean we understand why everything's happening in some very narrow sense. God, why did I get cancer? Why did this person die? Why did this happen? Why did... We don't know those answers directly, but we can situate all of that within the larger scope of the purposes of God. And having that larger perspective, then we need to lift our gaze beyond ourselves and our circumstances to view those things within God's larger agenda and our place within them. We need to recognize, which I think very few Christians really do, we're written into God's narrative. He's not written into ours. The fundamental issue in, in human fallenness is idolatry. There's really only two gods. There's the true God and there's me. And every God that we fashion is just an extrapolation of ourselves, our own interests, our own desires, our own agenda. It's like in Isaiah, you take a piece of wood and part of it you use to warm yourself and cook your food. And the other part you carve into an idol and say, you are my God, serve me. You're using the wood to serve you in all instances. It's warming you, it's cooking your food, and it's your idol that's going to benefit you and give you what you want. And we intrinsically and inherently write God into our narrative. We define him in our own likeness. He's concerned about what I'm concerned about. If he's good, fill in the blank. If he cares, fill in the blank. If he's really there, fill in the blank. And we have such a narrow and small view, and we're really only concerned about our circumstances in this life. We conscript God into our narrative and our agenda as the servant of our agenda. And that's why our praises look the way they do. Praise God, my cancer was healed. Praise God... You know, I I found the wife I was looking for. Praise God, praise God, praise God. And it never goes beyond anything than just how God is making things be favorable for me. If we're really going to be those who praise the Lord, we have to be able to praise him for his mighty works, his mighty deeds. And we may not know exactly how we fit into God's purposes, but we do. If we are his people, we play an essential part in his story. And the story is the issue, not our circumstances. As we grow in this understanding and this perspective, our prayer and our praises will be what they ought to be reflecting that truth that the God who is working all things after the counsel of his will has written us into his own story and is perfecting that work in us, that we will play our crucial role in the fullness of all things, the summing up of everything in Jesus. We have to believe that. Whatever our lot, whatever our circumstances, however the world appears to us, whatever its circumstances, God's Loving kindness is everlasting. His mercy is over all his works. Do we believe that? Do we model that in the world?
Or are we constantly self-seeking, constantly praising God when an outcome goes our way? And other than that, our life is nothing but prayer requests, prayer requests, prayer requests, prayer requests. Fix this, fix this, fix this, fix this, fix this. If that's the case, we're not appraising people. Father, these are crucially important things, not only for our own well-being, not only for our own state of mind, not only for our own authentic worship, our own faithful relationship with you, but beyond all of that, our testimony in the world. What gospel are we proclaiming? When we praise you, when we seek you, when we commend you, what does that praise, what does that commendation communicate to the world? Does our praise testify to the sons of men of the glory of the majesty of your kingdom, of the triumph of your dominion, that you are the great king who rules over all things in the glorified enthroned Son? Does our praise speak of that? Or does it speak of temporal benefit? Satisfaction of immediate desires and interests. Father, I pray that you would rightly convict us of these things and that you would, again, draw us up. Give us hearts and minds that seek to see and to be consumed by the very things that consume David's heart and mind. To be lost in the glory of the mystery of the marvel of this God and his triumphant work. To be those, as Paul said, who behold the glory of the living God that is in the face of Christ. With the knowledge that we are being transformed into that same likeness from glory unto glory. Help us to be faithful as Christians. Help us to be true testifiers of this good news. Father, help us to become and to ever grow in being a praising people. Sons and daughters indeed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.